0: listening to The 5 Games of a special series of the Games Industry Top Biz Podcast. Every month, I'm joined by a special guest to discuss their career over the course of five games, their first, their latest and three of their choice. The conversation not only covers the games themselves, but also the way those games demonstrate how the industry has changed over the years. Last time, we spoke to Brenda Romero, so if you haven't heard that episode, please be go, uh, go back and have a listen. This month, we are joined by a long-serving developer who started out in tabletop role-playing games uh, before moving into video games. Uh, over the course of his career, he has worked at Origin Systems, Looking Glass Studios, Ion Storm, Junction Point, which was later owned by Disney, and he's currently at Other Side Entertainment. And if you haven't guessed already by that introduction or the title of this episode, I am, of course, talking about Warren Spector. Warren, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to be here.
0: Um, I'd love to kind of give you a little chance to kind of sum up your background. Um, Bearing in mind that one of the first questions I'm going to be asking um, of, of your first game is what was your background in terms of how getting on this. But for the, on, the, on the off chance that someone has downloaded this by accident, who are you?
1: Uh, well, um, I'm Warren Spector. Uh, I've been making games for a pretty terrifying 38 years now. Uh, started out in tabletop games uh, and uh, moved into digital games uh, after about six years, uh, making, you know, Tabletop role playing in board games, um, and uh, you know, I, before that, I was working on my PhD in uh, radio, TV, film, and dropped out to uh, to become a game developer. And my mother cried for ten years, and then uh, she she got over it, though. So that's that's the very high level view of uh, of who I am. Nice.
0: Well, we're going to dive uh, a bit deeper as we move on to talk about your first game. Ultima 6 was released in 1990 for PC with ports on the Amiga, the Atari ST, the Commodore 64, the SNES and a few Japanese PC variants that I kind of didn't want to include in because they just, they're just a string of letters and numbers. Um, developed and published by Origin Systems. So how did, this was your first game, how
1: did you come to be on this game and what was your role? I, I got to Origin after working at TSR. I worked on uh, some AD&D stuff, Top Secret SI, one of their other role-playing games, and a variety of Marvel superhero stuff. I found myself thinking tabletop games weren't my future. I was playing you know, computer games obsessively at that point. And there was one day where I, I was thinking about a new game system. I had 20-sided dice in one hand and percentile dice in the other. And realized if that was the biggest decision I had to make in my professional life, I, I needed to find another professional life. Pretty much at that moment, uh, given that I'm the luckiest guy in the world, uh, I got a call from uh, Dennis Lubay, who was an artist uh, in Austin at Steve Jackson Games, where I started my, my career. Uh, he was at Origin and he said, hey, we're looking for uh, an associate producer. Are you interested? I just said, yeah. I, Richard Garriott was was kind of the the creative force behind uh, Origin, and I'd been on a couple of panels with him uh, at science fiction conventions. Very quickly realized that he was totally on the same page I was about what computer games, you know, could and should be. So, after a grueling round of interviews, uh, I got the job at Origin left lovely lake geneva wisconsin and tsr and uh, started working with with rich i actually worked on on several projects uh, early on rich on ultima 6 uh, paul Nuraf on a game called space rogue which is sadly forgotten at this point but it's a pretty small game i even got to work with chris roberts on some of his early stuff but uh, on ultima 6 uh, i started out collaborating with rich on uh, the overall plot of the game and the missions and the NPCs. We spent a few weeks at his crazy palatial manor with its dungeon down below and everything, eating far too much Chinese food and basically creating what became the game. I, I kind of think of that as my, my sort of graduate school of game development, uh, because he, he showed me so much and taught me so much. It's, it's funny. I, I got to, to, uh, origin thinking I'm going to show these computer guys, what interactivity is all about. And it, it took me like three and a half hours to realize I knew nothing. <laughs> I learned a lot working with Rich. Um, his whole working method was, was different than anything I'd ever seen. You know, he would go off alone until I started working with him. And we, I guess that was the first time he collaborated with anybody. He created what he called his black book, a notebook, you know, full of empty pages and he would just write out by hand, everything that was gonna be in the game. It was pretty remarkable. He started out doing that when he was making games entirely by himself, you know, on paper tape. He did his first game on, on paper tape. You wanna talk about how things have changed, Holy cow! <laughs> but anyway, I helped him fill out the black book. And uh, from there uh, we went back to the team and you know, he. He ran the show. There was no question who was the creative force behind Ultima Six, but it started with that black book, and I I was lucky enough to, to help him uh, help him create it.
0: Nice. It's kind of a broad question, but it's it's kind of a good one to start off with. with the, you know, the very the the five game structure that we do here is what were the biggest developments? Uh, sorry, the biggest differences in development and the industry in general compared to today. So, like when you think back to like when you first started. I like oh you yeah know, what was harder what was easier
1: what was more fun what was more grueling uh wow how much time do you have um <laughs> when i when i think about it, it it's almost like everything has changed you know i i was kind of a second or third generation computer game developer or video game developer so i didn't get in on the very ground floor but uh still you know on ultima 6 um the team was. 10 people i guess and that was a huge team back then Paul on space road uh, it was him <laughs> you know very very different one person really could uh control the creative in a very direct and comprehensive way so there was there was that difference uh communication was much easier you know basically you just swiveled around in your chair and there was the rest of the team so uh, it, was, it was easy to communicate what was going on. Uh, you could overhear everything that was going on. If there was a, a problem or someone was solving a problem the wrong way, you knew about it instantly. Budgets were much smaller. <laughs> I did a game later on called Martian Dreams, which used the Ultima Six engine, I guess, as its foundation. And I had a budget of $200,000. I, I, I got so much grief from my boss because I spent $275,000, uh, which was a lot of money back then, you know? So team size, uh, creative control, communication, budgets. But the, the biggest thing, you, you know, you want to talk about stress and fun. I mean, in its own way, it was just as stressful making games back then as it is now but it, it was so much fun being on the ground floor you know nobody knew what they were doing so so everything was made up on the fly rich rich didn't know what he was doing uh chris roberts was was starting to think about a cinematic game that became wing commander um nobody knew how to do that if you look at the uh, the intro movie for ultima six there's a moment where the the character you 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 know the avatar you're walking towards a portal, and it's you could see the figure a human figure head to foot, and the animation blew us away. It was the most incredible human animation we'd ever seen. There's a a shot where you see the hand of the avatar come up in in the. Uh, on the screen, and there's a stone in the palm of the hand, the most realistic hand any of us had ever seen. And you look at it now, and it's horrible. <laughs> you know? It's just hideous. But, but like I said, we were making it up. And, you know, I mean, when I got there, we, we basically had green. That was our color. And then, oh, my God, we have four colors now. And and what what we could do with sixteen colors it was just it was outrageous you know none of us could have foreseen what was what was happening but I, I have to say at, at Origin we we really did kind of look to the future in a way that I'm not sure I'm genuinely not sure I'm not the too I mean I'm not sure other companies did later on uh, we had a saying that no one remembers the best game that runs on a 386. They just remember the best game. And we were constantly put to the chagrin of the the business and marketing people. We were always pushing way beyond where the tech was when we were making the games, because we always figured, well, uh, you know, they'll catch up eventually. And so our games ran at 10 frames a second when we shipped (laughs) them. They were full of crazy bugs. You know, on Ultima 6, there was, right after we it was the first game we did that that shipped on a hard that you could install to a hard drive and i'm not sure we ever tested it running off a hard drive like at all but there was a bug after we shipped it was so funny if if you put your your party on a boat and start sailing and cross uh, a region boundary the ship split apart, your party disappeared, showed up somewhere. And Lord British, you know, Rich's, uh, you know, avatar would show up somewhere in the world as a random object. Um, And my favorite was the, he showed up once as a decorative sword. So there's this decorative sword moving around the world (laughs) claiming to be Lord British, but you know, stuff like that happened all the time. It was, it was just, it was like a bunch of kids, you know, playing around and figuring out what what this, you know, blob of clay could turn into. So, uh it was
0: it was a ton of fun. You, know? you say bug, that sounds like like a prototype for emergent storytelling. Let's go with that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you say that and and it is it is kind of funny, but one of the things that attracted me to Origin in the first place was uh, I looked around at, at all the, uh, the people making role-playing games, you know, CRPGs back then, and I thought every one of them was simulating the wrong things about role-playing. I mean, they were, they were doing ROLL playing, not ROLE playing. And the, the part of of uh, Dungeons and & Dragons and Call of Cthulhu and Traveler and all those games that I was totally addicted to, uh, to the detriment of my GPA, what what they were about was telling stories with my friends, not being told a story, and not rolling dice to, you know, resolve combat. It was about the the moments when we weren't rolling dice. And what impressed the hell out of me was, was that Rich got that. You know, he understood. And Ultima 6, I mean, I'd played Ultima 4 and loved it, uh, and Ultima 5, but Ultima 6 was, you know, in my opinion, the first time he really started getting at that, Emergent gameplay. I mean, there were things you, you decided how to interact with the world and with the characters, and, and the world was simulated just deeply enough that it, it convinced you that you were in Britannia in a way that, that no other game I'd played uh, or even seen had ever done. So that was kind of the beginning of emergent gameplay.
0: The world as well. Like I, I, so I have to confess and, and shamefully, like I haven't played the Ultima games. Um, I, I never, I never had a PC back in the day. I was very much, a, I, I was a console. I was a this conversation
1: game. is done. <laughs> We're <World> over.
0: Shortest <laughs> podcast ever. Um, no, but uh, what I was reading, like about Ultima Six, like it is by this point the series had this kind of big seamless interconnected world that you could explore, and obviously it was all two D and kind of top down. But like that, I can believe at the time that was probably a, a, a big deal. And you look at how open and huge, vast RPG worlds are now. Like, when it comes to kind of um, creating a world and, and, and allowing players to explore it, how has that changed over the course of your career, do you think?
1: Well, like, like everything else, um, it's gotten a lot harder, you know, when you're dealing with tiles and squidgy little, two, you know, 64 pixel tall 2D you know, characters. It's it's a lot easier to create a, a big expansive fully explorable world now. I mean the 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 need uh, for uh, content. I mean it's like this this medium is voracious. Uh, it it just it just demands so much content, and the the um, the, the quality in terms of like hyper realism for for the most part, not entirely, but the quality of the assets is is so high now and player expectations are so high back then you know if you sold a hundred thousand copies it, that was going gold and you bought your ferrari i mean it was insane and um so the standards were lower i guess um because we were we were you know making games for ourselves dnd nerds you know it really was kind of you know, geek alert! The nerd level is going way up now. So you know that's different now. You know, to, it's fantastic, and it's also, frankly, sometimes a little annoying. We're we're a mainstream medium, you know, and we we have to accommodate millions and millions and millions of people's expectations. You know, I I, I can't speak for anybody else at Origin, but I used to I used to watch what what others were doing and think about what, what even I was doing and think, you know, we're going to change the world. This is literally going to change the world. And we, we kind of did it, <laughs> you know, not me, not origin, but, but video games are, you know, it's like the old, the old truism. We're, we're legitimately bigger than movies and music combined by a substantial margin. And like I said, that, that drives expectations of quality. That drives expectations of bug-freeness. That drives expectations of, you know, well, I don't want to wait 30 seconds for this to load, or I don't want to have to take a floppy disk and insert it in my drive and wait two minutes for it to, you know, it to, it to start playing. When, when I was you know, just a player, I had a, a tape drive for my Atari 400. I modified my Atari 400 hot rod so it would actually play games. And you would put a, a cassette, a, t- a tape cassette, into this, this cassette drive and wait half an hour for it to load the game. And half the time, it would crash before it loaded. You can't get away with that anymore. So big expansive worlds, super expensive to build. Quality standards are much higher. You, you gotta be bug free or you know people start demanding their money back not that that happened last year to anybody you know it's it's really really different i'd love
0: for someone to work out like how like uh, how long a, a, say a witcher 3 or an assassin's creed valhalla would take to load on the old cassette um systems like, like i was at a conference once and um a developer was talking about like um you know their experiences with kind of the older systems and their son, sorry, their son was taking a complaint that it was taking five minutes to load. I think it was a game of Total War. And this developer like, worked out how long it would have taken to load on the consoles and the machines that he was using when he was younger. And it was 15 years. And he's ah. like, you have nothing to be complaining about.
1: <laughs> That's awesome. I mean, I was, uh, I was worried. Uh, one of the things I, I did was I, I ran the team that ported Ultima 6 to the Commodore 64. <laughs> and it ended up being what was it 6 8 10 discs, I don't know, two sided so you were constantly, you know, doing this. And it it took a long time for things to load, but 15 years that's that's awesome. I mean, somebody should just do that, you know. On that rather random note, we're going to
0: move on to your second game. Ultima Underworld, the Stagian Abyss was released in 1992 for PC, later ported to PlayStation and Windows Mobile, apparently, uh, developed and published by Origins Systems. Uh, How did you come to work on this one? So, you know, you're part of the Origins team. How did you get put onto this project?
1: Well, for starters, it's important to understand that uh, that game was actually made at uh, Blue Sky Productions, uh, which later became Looking Glass Technologies. one of the things that I did was um, my, my whole, you know, business model was to do um, both internal and external projects. And um, Underworld was one of the external ones. So all credit to, to the guys who made that. Um, but I, I remember uh, Paul Duran, the guy I worked with on, on Space Road, came to Origin one day with a tech demo um that he showed we all gathered around a computer and um he he showed this thing off and it was uh a first person perspective fully textured real-time uh 3d world the very first one anybody had ever done as far as i know in fact it's just to jump ahead a little bit we shipped before castle wolfenstein Okay. <laughs> so, Wolfenstein was not the first fully textured 3D first-person
2: work.
1: <laughs> not that I'm bitter. Uh anyway, uh he he showed this demo and I I can't speak for what anybody else was thinking at the time, but I my jaw hit the ground and I had one of those not we're going to change the world. The world just changed. And uh, I went to my boss, Dallas Snell, who ran product development at origin and said you got to give me this project this is mine i gotta have it. um because i saw the potential there to to really get at that you know immersive emergent thing where you're you're not controlling a puppet you know you're it's you in the world which gets all the way back to all that D stuff you know where it's about you in a world and um he said no I had other stuff I was working on. So he gave it to uh, another producer. And I I died. And luckily for me, that other producer left the company. And I said, this is mine, Alex. (laughs) And he said, okay. So I got on it very, very early. And um, I I remember the day, uh, it was uh, a few months later, that uh, Paul Nurath, and a guy named Judd Church uh, came down to Origin to, to pitch us um, on the narrative, uh, proposed narrative. And I'm going to get in so much trouble for saying this with Paul and Doug that I think they came up with it on the plane from Boston to Austin, and it 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 kind of felt like that, right? So we did a bunch of brainstorming and suggested that. It be set in the ultimate universe, and you know, basically, there was this light bulb moment, and everybody realized, yeah, of course, that's the right thing to do. Um, so uh, that was that was kind of how I got involved in it. After that, it was it, it was incredible. There was a, a small team. I mean, it was probably half a dozen people at most, none of whom had ever worked on a game before. N- none of them. They were all. Um, you know, like MIT grads, super smart, with with this kind of cocky, "Hey, we've been playing games forever. We'll show these guys how to make them." Uh, kind of attitude, and I started talking to them every day. I mean, you know, I, Doug to this day is is one of my friends. Uh, we're, you know, we we still talk all the time. We've worked together on a bunch of projects, and I, I very quickly realized that. He was he was the guy. There, there was no official product lead or you know, creative director or anything. I mean, Paul was kind of doing that. But on a daily basis, Doug, Doug very quickly, you know, sort of took charge of, of that project. And so he and I talked all the time. It, it was it was kind of problematic in a way. I mean, they were all working out of an office that was like two hours away from where they lived. And they weren't getting a whole lot done. So I suggested, hey, we we need to get these guys in an office close to where they live. So they're not spending, you know, four hours commuting every day to the the Blue Sky office. Mm -hmm. I I went up there to visit them uh, and work with them for a couple of weeks. And they they all lived, this team lived in a house. You know, it was like a bunch of students living together in this crazy house. They called it uh, Deco Morono house of 10 dumb guys and uh, i went up there and um, very quickly realized that i was the stupidest person in the room i you know i I think they were having a conversation in old english or some craziness like that and uh they were drinking too much uh hot mountain dew with marshmallows and living on that kind of stuff and anyway we moved into a uh, uh an office you know, it was in the basement of a, uh, a government building where, you know, indigent people would go to get food and, you know, and, and sleep and all that sort of stuff. It was horrible. <laughs> I mean, it was, we would close the doors and the wind, you know, it was, it was winter in Boston. And I, I went up there for about three months. My, my wife is the most understanding person in the world. Towards the end of the project it wasn't enough for me to be talking to them every day to see what was going on and to help them however I could. I moved up there for, for a few months and the wind would whistle under the door, you know, and, and we put um, towels blocking the, the the wind and they they had a, a bunch of, uh, you know, like beach chairs, the, the plastic ones, you know, beach chairs set up and they were, they would type on their beach chairs and, it, you know, we would we would debug the game and and last minute additions and everything. It was it was an amazing experience. Um, that was a team that was was absolutely committed to uh, you know to changing the world. And um, you know, people people talk a lot about crunch now, and it's clearly a problem. But back then, making games was a calling. It wasn't it wasn't a job. You know, it's like I I have no idea what I would have done if I hadn't started making games. And those guys all felt that too. And there was there was such a commitment to making sure that it was just a great game. Um there was a lot of you know sleeping in that crummy little little one room office. Um but at the end of the day, I think the results speak for themselves. You know, it was it was the first real immersive simulation. uh, you know where you could solve problems the way you wanted and you explored a world freely and it was you there so uh, I think uh, it was in my mind uh, worth the effort I am itching to talk about immersive
0: sins with you um but I am gonna have to touch on that that crunch comment um uh, like just from your from your perspective like how has have the attitudes towards crunch and the actual realities of crunch changed since those days because as you said like back then it was like you said, like everyone was kind of just absolutely dedicated. And it was like the it wasn't it was more of a calling than a job because just the, the economic realities. I imagine in terms of how much people were paid, and, and as you said, like kind of the results speak for themselves. And that sometimes is the kind of the the defence that we see nowadays. Like eventually, like, well, the game sold you know four billion copies. Like just from from your perspective, like obviously you've been you aware of the industry and kind of you know, close eye on the industry throughout your career. How have the like the reports that have come out the last few years, like how did that even compare to how
1: it was back then? I I think it's better now. You know, I I am absolutely not um, a forced crunch kind of guy. Um, I think sometimes I get that reputation because I'm I'm not great with schedules and budgets. And saying that, I I've just ensured that I will never work again. Um, but um, you know, I've certainly been a part of, of some pretty grueling crunches, um, but it, there, there are two kinds of, of crunch in my mind. There's the mandated crunch, which is actively evil, and, and you just shouldn't do it. I mean, it's, it's an indication of poor management, um, uncaring management. Um, it's, you, you don't get a whole lot of value out of it um after a certain point having said that i think you know up to 50 hours that's that's not asking too much um, and i think productivity does go up but when you get much more than that you're you're really asking for trouble um, but the other kind of of here the air quotes crunch is uh, i i call it hyper dedication where people are doing it out of love <laughs> and commitment and dedication not out of uh forced servitude you know and you know i mean i used to have a rule where uh if any anybody on my team was in the office i was in the office and you know in fairness i was there at two or three in the morning a fair amount of the time and you know i would drive home at two in the morning and have no idea how i got home which is
2: terrifying
1: um but it was, it was because people wanted this to be great, not because they were told you must. The first time uh, I, I was involved in really heinous crunch um, was uh, on a game called uh, Ultima 7 Part 2 Serpent Island, which may be the worst name for a video game in all <laughs> of history. An, until we did a, an add-on module for it, so it became Ultima 7 Part 2 Serpent Isle the Silver Seed, which was a little bit worse. But, um, you know, I have to take the blame. I, I did not do a good job managing that, that project or that team. It was, it was bigger than anything I'd worked on, and I wasn't prepared for it. And, you know, like I said, we were making it up as we went along. And there came a point where it, it just had to shift. And I will not name the person who said this, but I was told by someone who outranked me that I had to put my team on seven-day weeks, twelve hours a day, until we shipped. And I refused. I said no. I I will not do that. And this person, I said, you're going to have to do that. I there's no way I'm telling the team that. And he went and told them that. Um, and. That team, you know, me included, worked, it, it was ridiculous. It was stupid hard. And um it didn't help. Um, you know, the, the first time we got a complete cheat-free playthrough was the day before we went full beta. You know, we had never gotten all the way through it. And even when we shipped, it was so buggy.
2: Oh my god.
1: And um, I was terrified because, you know, the, the team was burned out. You start making a lot of mistakes. Even then, you ship a bad game or a buggy game. I mean, it was actually, I think, a good game. I'll let other people decide that. But um, it, 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 you ship a buggy game and, you know, you, you're living on pins and needles for a while. But then humorously, there was a, a, computer, a, a magazine called Computer Gaming World. And there was a reviewer, uh, named Scorpia who reviewed Serpent Isle and called it the best bug free (laughs) Ultima ever. (laughs) So we got away with it, but, um, no, that was, that was terrible. That was absolutely horrible. And one of the worst professional experiences I've had. Um, so I don't want to be tarred with the brush of being a crunch monster, you know, a little bit of, uh, of, of overtime isn't going to kill anybody but you can certainly go too far.
0: Mm. We're going to revisit Ultima 7 part 2 Nile, um, a little bit later but um, before we uh, move on from Underworld I definitely do want to talk about immersive sim because as you say this is potentially you know, like this is the first example of of what one can be and um, this is a genre I absolutely love and I luckily got the chance to talk to you about it. Um, few years ago at a conference and, and you just I was watching playthroughs of this earlier today of Ultima Underworld and like you you look at it and you instantly see the roots of, you know, Deus Ex obviously, Bioshock, the Thief games, uh, mm-hmm. you know, even like the, the Bethesda the Elder Scrolls kind of uh games, Half Life to an extent, like in terms of here's this first person 3D environment where it's not A to B. And it's, yeah, like it's, it's not a, a route of A to B, and it's all split into levels. And unlike you know Wolfenstein, which you could definitely beat to shipment, um, like it's not. It's not just like right, kill all the things and get to the end of the level. Like there are different, um, there are different forms of gameplay. There, it's not just about combat. It is about kind of puzzle solving and exploration and and finding things and discovery. Like from your point of view, like and obviously you you've made more than enough contributions to this this genre. Like how has that that design ethos, that genre, um, evolved over the yeah, you know, like since since Under, Ultima Underworld to today. Where 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 has that idea, that concept, been taken?
1: Well, the the interesting thing I think is that you're right. Ultima Underworld, you could see this this sort of embryo embryo version of it. I, I will take issue with one thing you said though. You said the word puzzle. At my studios, you're not allowed to say the word puzzle. Ah. Okay, Puzzle implies that um, there's a designer who created a, 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 a thing that can only be solved one way, the, the way the, the designer intended it to be solved. So the, the joy of playing a puzzle game is I was clever enough to, to figure out what the designer wanted me to do. Um, and what what I've always tried to do, and what I think, um, whether consciously or not, what all immersive sims are built around, and that 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 you know, um, seed that turns into a beautiful flower, it's um, that we pre- present challenges and problems that players can solve however they want. I mean, within within reason, obviously, but the whole idea is um If the player tries it Whatever it is tries something the world should respond in some logical way and You want as much as possible for that thing the player tried to do to work You know thwarting player expectation Is one of the worst things I think you can do in a video game like you know I know I don't know anything about that says an NPC. Whoops. You're instantly pulled out of the experience and now you're just playing a silly game, You know, and, and that's just the grossest example um, Players should be free to experiment uh, To apply, you know logic uh, And solve problems the way they want not puzzles. Okay, so that's that for me is is kind of the heart of it It's you in the world um trying things experimenting um applying your your real world uh thoughts about what's right and wrong and appropriate and inappropriate and good and evil you know um it's it's you and and you know maybe you even learn something about yourself as you play whereas um you know in in most games and i think you started to see this in underworld and you see it a lot more today. In in a lot of games, if you listen to somebody talk about their experience, what you hear is, um, wasn't it cool when when, insert character name here, I'm not going to name the game I'm thinking of, but, you know, wasn't it cool when they jumped across the chasm and almost missed, but looked up and there was a, Dinosaur, you know, and, and, and she got out her gun, and, you know That's and every player says yeah, that was cool And in in a game, I mean like Deus Ex which is 21 years old now, even then There were there were things like uh, if you listen to conversations about people describing their experience What you what you heard was stuff like wasn't it cool when when you not the character when you rescued that guy from the prison and the response is what prison you know that's the win because those two players had completely different experiences because the game supported their their unique choices okay and i mean there's i could talk about this all day god but that the the kernel of that was was right there in in underworld and and it's just been you know I, I know for myself and i i suspect for everybody who works in in that genre probably for everybody who makes games actually if i'm being fair it's just about you know you have this idea in your head and you just try to do it better and better and better each time you know let's take a step forward um, you know i i Uh, years ago I I wrote up a a manifesto uh, a mission statement that I have used at all of my studios you know I it changes a tiny bit over time but basically I've, I've had exactly the same goals from the time I started working at Steve Jackson games till today I'm only interested in making one kind of game and that is game a game that empowers players and tell their own story a little bit more and a little bit better than the last game i worked in, okay and that's that's the mission statement that's the goal and to be frank it's i'm a wordy bastard so it's long enough that nobody wants to read it so i finally i wrote shorter and shorter and shorter versions of it until i finally ended up with two words uh play style matters so it's about how you decide to play that makes a difference in the experience. And at the end of the day, if I, if I've succeeded, my teams have succeeded. It's, um, no two players finish the game, having had the same experience. Um, they may experience the same overarching plot. Um, you know, I, I, the way I always say it is I own Aristotle, you know, but the minute to minute experience belongs entirely to the player and it you know we get better at it every game um you know we empower players more and more um or at least we can and um, many developers try and and succeed at it, empowering their players more than uh, than the last time
0: Ultima 7 Part 2, Serpent Isle, I heard from someone, is one of the worst game titles ever made. <laughs> <laughs> titles, not like actual worst games. Uh, it was released in 1993 for PC, developed and published by Origin Systems. Um, so, yes, we've, we've touched on the fact that you were working on this game, like a little bit more about kind of what your role was and how you kind of came to work on this, Like presumably straight after Underworld?
1: Yeah. Actually, it was about the same time. Um, so... My role is kind of weird. I've, I've played uh, a bunch of different roles and worn a bunch of different hats. Um, there are some titles where uh, I was largely uh, responsible for you know, team management and schedule update and budgeting and all that stuff. Uh, there are some where I was the, the lead designer. There are some where I was uh, the creative director, which, to be frank, is the role I, I enjoy the most and feel most comfortable in. Um, where the job is to, um, to be the, I guess, the, the final arbiter of, of what goes in the game. Um, what I like to do is kick stuff off and um, make sure that we're, we're on the path to making uh, the game that, that I want or that we want, and then come back in towards the end when the game hits alpha, which I describe as the finished but not fun stage, and then make the game fun over the last several months. So on Serpent Isle, uh, I, I started out, uh, that was one where I worked largely as uh, the creative director. It was one of the first times I did that. And so um, I, had, I brought on a team, I had an actual game director, um, and uh, the, the team was pretty big actually. Uh, and so I worked very closely with the game director in that kickoff phase to make sure we were making the game that that I wanted it to be. Okay. But the day-to-day of that game was in the game director's hands. And to be honest, we started out, you know, I don't know what we were thinking. Like everybody else in the game business, we, we wanted to make a pirate game. So it was it was gonna be like the Pirates of Ultima. And as that went on, um, I started looking at the direction the game was taking, and it wasn't working for me, and it didn't feel very Ultima-like, and so we did a reset, and um, the team got reorganized, and um, roles changed a little bit, and we ended up making a um, a much more traditional Ultima game, and um, the reason uh, it's set on Serpent Isle, a new location, was because um Richard I mean he's a creative powerhouse and, and he's um a little bit of a control freak when it comes to, to the ultimate games and I I just didn't want to make a game where Richard could come in and say the magic words that would never happen in Britannia so um we had to create a new world uh from scratch but it still had to have one of those things that, that the Ultimate Games required. Um, one of the things I loved about Ultimate 4 and, and 5 and 6 was that um, there was this concept of the virtues where you know, the player had to, had to live up to uh, these virtues and decide how to, how to behave to live up to the virtues, which is another sort of immersive sin sort of way. What do you believe about this stuff? And, but I didn't want to use the virtues that Richard had come up with because then he could say, you're not doing it right. So we came up with our own set of virtues. Um, and, uh, like I said, the team was, was the biggest one I'd ever, I'd ever dealt with. And I, I, again, we were making it up. I didn't know what I was doing. I, I kind of screwed up. I screwed the team because we were running, you know, the, the reinvention slowed us down um i didn't know how to manage a team that big um we had um you know i i restructured the team and changed roles uh because i i needed people in place that would that got what i wanted the game to be um and and that resulted in uh, a very very difficult development uh, the development process so that was that was kind of the way it went. The, the thing is, the, the one part of the, the story I left out was, um, actually, I can go further back. Right after I got uh, down to Origin and started working on Ultimate 6, I looked at the, um, the world editor that was being used to create the world. And I, I just come from, from TSR, where Dungeon Masters create all this amazing stuff for their players to interact with. And I said, we should ship the world editor. I mean, people would love this. And everybody looked at me like a, you know, a dog being shown a magic trick. And, and they said, no one would ever want to use this. We we don't want to make this usable by, by gamers. So we could have been the first people to release a game engine, but we weren't. Um, But we invested a lot of money in the Ultima six technology and then later in the Ultima seven technology. And so to, to sort of recoup some of that expense um, we started doing uh, using game engines in the way that that we do now, I, I I suppose, yeah, a bunch of companies were doing that back then. Um, You know, uh, Lucas with the scum system and and all of that, but on Ultima six, that was followed by, Savage Empire and Martian Dreams, which used the same tech, and then uh, on Ultima Seven there was a whole new uh, technology base, and so I took that and and we used it on on Ultima Seven Part Two, Serpent Isle, um, to to create the game, which you would think would have saved us a bunch of time and effort and pain and suffering, but for for whatever reason, I'll take full responsibility for it. But it it didn't quite work out that way. It was still just hideously painful
0: as you said like this this was your first kind of large-scale project where you were in charge you were were
1: managing the team um, and it sounds well, like martian you- dreams i did martian dreams okay. you know i i worked kind of the same way i, I had uh, uh a lead designer um who was very very talented and you know we collaborated i i need a partner uh, i i'm I, I just i i, I need someone to to collaborate with to succeed. I, I'm not a an empty hard drive blank screen designer, you know, I'm not Will Wright or whoever the equivalent is now. <laughs> um, so I I always I always need a collaborator. And and I I I had one, actually I had two as it turns out, serially on uh Cervinal.
0: I guess what I, what I was aiming to ask you was um, just how the the role of managers, the role of like you know um, the people in charge of projects, as you know, like you know the teams have got a lot a lot bigger. Um, that that's something we do know now, like slightly bigger now on, on on games, but like the the actual responsibilities in the day to day of the management, like how has that changed? Kind of sit from from your ultimate days to you know your, your later titles, which we're going to get to, and even like kind of stuff today, like. How how different is that now compared to
1: how it was in the '90s? Uh, Well, there again, it's well. In a way, it's completely different, I guess. Um, And yet, in another way, it isn't. You know, I mean, we even with a small team, um, communication can be can be challenging uh, when you have interesting personalities and conflicts and things like that. And, you know, it's useful to have a split between creative and, um, and management. Um, one of the things I always tell people, you know, do as I say, not as I did uh, or as I do. Um, because they're, they're, for a long time, there has been this split between creative and management. And I've been lucky enough, and, and I'm, you know, barely good enough, I guess, to To do both of those, I've always been, you know, a creative producer, I guess, and so I, I've always had um, uh, creative input and uh, done creative direction on titles, while at the same time uh, managing the development. So I've I've done both of those and done them both simultaneously. Um, that was way easier back in the day. Um, nowadays, that split is. Is necessary. Um, you you just can't manage a project and a team and uh, own the creative aspects of it. So um, you know, I, not to not to tease what we'll probably talk about soon. Um, I had more producers on Epic Mickey than I had people on my team uh, earlier on. Um, it was it was intense uh on epic making so that's that's the big change i mean there is there's way more specialization in all aspects of of triple a development now um double a uh in you know true indie um it's a different story um but in in the world that that i inhabit uh it's it's a radically different world now much much more specialized and um, of the titles we're talking about today um
0: Ultima 7 part 2 Seven Nile is um it's it's a bit more lim- linear carefully plotted um is my understanding like it's it's not it's it's not the kind of the immersive sim um that you've obviously become known for like uh, just I'm, I'm intrigued as to because we do still have linear experiences Literally, like not everything is an open world rpg although most things are nowadays it feels like um but like how do you how do you give players agency or, like, or, or how, has, how have developers been able to kind of give players agency or the feeling of agency in a more directed experience kind of over the years like, and, you know, and drawing on your learnings from this title in particular?
1: Well, um, you know, it's interesting. At the time, I didn't, I didn't realize that we were actually creating a more linear experience. Um, it's, it's only in retrospect. I go, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> hold on. Uh, we, we, we did that. Why did why did I let that happen? How did I not notice? Um, but uh, the, the I think the, the thing in, in a completely linear game, the, the joys are a little different uh, for players. It's, um, you know, it gets back to the, the puzzle. idea. There's the, the joy of outsmarting a designer and uh in the the case of uh you know a traditional shooter um where you know if you move forward like a shark you'll eventually win or give up because you're not good enough like me um but uh the joy there is uh i i made it all the way through this holy cow uh and in in some other uh entirely linear largely linear games the joy is i was skilled enough to pull this off um even if everybody has the same experience i mean it's just to be clear it's not it's not for me to tell people what games to make or what games to play or what what brings them joy that is i'm i'm pretty committed to a particular philosophy and i can overstate to make my case sometimes but um Go, go make and play the games you love. Go, go, go. You, in a linear game, I think you have to, you have to fulfill all three of those uh, uh, requirements, you know, and deliver on those three kinds of joy. Whereas in an immersive sim, uh, the joys are are different. The joys are, I was clever enough to solve this problem in a way that other people didn't, you know? i mean nowadays with with twitch and and all sorts of streaming stuff you can it's it's such a good time for immersive sims because you can actually show people the crazy things you did to solve the same problem that they solved in a completely different way you know that's the joy i was smart and i did things the way i wanted to um or even i broke the game you know i mean the the Canonical example is the the lamb ladders in Deus Ex, you know, where players used the light attack munitions In ways that nobody on the team anticipated Um, and and that's that's the real power of it for me. It's not about being told a story Uh by someone it's about telling a story with someone Um, and it's like even in single player the, it, it's about it's about shared authorship. It's about a dialogue between the the designer and and the player, and and that's that's super exciting to mm-hmm. me. Um, but in a linear experience, like I said, there there are other joys. Uh, as long as you deliver on them, you're, you're fine.
0: Oh, we're back on immersive Sims, My favourite favourite example of that, of that kind of thing that you were talking about is um, Arcane when they were making the um, when they were making Dishonored, the first Dishonored. Like I, I, like you said, like the, you know, the the players who kind of cheat their way through. They found that some players were using Blink to get up onto the rooftops and like just about on the edge to kind of like kind of get around the level without doing the bits so they just went back and made the rooftops wider wider to make that a thing that was a valid exposure like there that that's brilliant I, I personally love that kind of design ethos of like yeah you know what here's a scenario tackle it how you want um that is perhaps best typified um or very well typified by the next game that
2: we're going to discuss
0: Deus Ex was released in 2000 for PC and Mac, later released in 2002 for PS2, developed by Ionstorm, published by iDOS Interactive. How did you come to work on what is perhaps the game you are best known for?
1: Uh, and one of the two games I'm most proud of, actually. <laughs> I don't talk about which is my favorite, but, but Pride is is there for sure. Um, yeah, I I started thinking about the game that became Deus Ex. Uh, 1995, I guess. Um, I was still I was still at Origin, which had been acquired by Electronic Arts by that point. And I was I was pretty tired of um, you know fantasy games and you know guys in plate armor and women in you know bikini armor and stuff like that. And I was tired of science fiction games about you know being the last space marine between the Earth and alien invasion and um i wanted to do what i was thinking about at that time is the real world role playing game i wanted to set a game in the real world (sighs) you know what a concept um and uh that that when i started putting meat on the bones of that it turned into a a concept called um, shooter and troubleshooter i went back and forth ironically called shooter because I wasn't going to make a shooter. I was going to make the real world role playing game. Um I wrote up a big design document. I'm I'm an over documenter too. I I like writing and I like reading. And I like knowing where I'm at least trying to go even when reality catches up. So I wrote this enormous design doc and nobody was interested. <laughs> I mean they, they just didn't care. Um so I I put it away, figured okay, maybe someday I'll get to do that. Later on I went to uh to work at Looking Glass. Uh instead of running Looking Glass projects from the origin side, uh, I went to work there and um it, it it didn't work out very well. Okay. Um not for, you know, personal personality or, you know, professional reasons. It was uh, the company was, was having some trouble and um, it didn't make sense. I'd i started an Austin studio that I was running um, and the Boston studio, the the home office was still going strong or relatively strongly, I guess. And I, I just talked with, uh, with Paul Neurath, who was running Looking Glass at that time. And we talked and we talked and, and came to the conclusion that it didn't make sense to uh, to put the company at risk, to keep a remote studio going. So I just said, I'll, I'll find another deal. It'll be fine. Don't worry about me. I'll be okay. And um, I, I had the core of a team because the Looking Glass folks, uh, Looking Glass Austin stayed on uh, while I was out looking for another deal. And I, I kind of pulled out that old troubleshooter proposal and and took a big black pen and went, and you know, filed a lot of the details off. I wish I still had the contract and all of the the papers and design notes and everything. But I, I was really close to signing a deal with uh, with Westwood to do the Command and Conquer role playing game, which was just going to be Troubleshooter. You know, haha! I'm going to fool them and make this game I want to make, but set it in the Command and Conquer universe. And I had a contract. And uh, I was going to sign it. And John Romero, blessed that man, called me up and said, uh, I'm, I've got this company called Ion Storm. You should do a game for me. And I told him, it's, it's too late. I, I mean, I've got a contract. I've got a deal. I'm going to do the game. And he said, don't sign that contract. I'm driving down to Austin from Dallas tomorrow, and we're going to talk. <laughs> and he did. He drove down in his enormous Hummer. He's a, he's a bigger than life personality and he had a car to match and he drove down and, and, you know, he was sitting on a couch and I was sitting in a chair in our break room uh, at what used to be Looking Glass Austin. He said, make the game of your dreams, no creative interference, the biggest budget you've ever had and more marketing support than you've ever had. (laughs) And, you know, I thought about it for about three seconds and, you know, who says no to that? right it was one of those who says no to it moments i had another one which i'm sure we'll get to but um and so i i signed on i i I don't know why people keep letting me do it but he said start an austin office for ion storm you know and um and i did and took the the black pen to command and conquer you know or turned it into something else it it was oh god what was the name of it i would forgotten what the what we were calling it at the time. It didn't start out as Deus Ex. but anyway, it quickly became apparent as again I had collaborators. You know, I had I had some really talented people at that time, and we would we sat around in the break room and talked about what the game could be, and it it quickly became apparent that the real world role playing game was a terrible idea. It's just. At at that point, I I would argue even today, it's just not possible to, to simulate the world deeply enough not to thwart player expectation all the time. You know, you couldn't put a phone on a desk because people understand how phones work, have expectations about that, and we couldn't deliver on those expectations. Call anybody you want, you can't do it. You know, putting a television on people's desks, You can't really do it. There's a car out on the street. You expect to drive it, right? We moved it just far enough into the future to unask all of those unanswerable questions about the real world, but close enough that you could still reflect things that that are happening in the real world and that people care about. That's a critical point. I, I have no interest in convincing people to be interested in something. What I, what I try to do is find things that people are already interested in and build concepts around that. And so, you know, in 1997, which was when this, this was all taking place, if you looked around, there were a couple of things that, that were just all over the place. You couldn't go online or talk to anybody and, and not find a conspiracy theory, you know? It, they were everywhere. Uh, there were books. There were websites. There was everything. And, you know, people were talking about Y2K when the world is going to come to an end because computer calendars are not set up for the, the turn of the century. And terrorism was becoming an issue at that point, you know. And and so you, you put that oh, one. And genetic engineering. We were starting to hear about gene splicing back then. Yeah. And, you know, the sad thing is all of those things are still true. <laughs> wow. I had really thought about that. But you could, you could see the beginnings of them. And so you, you take those things and, you know, and throw them in a pot. And then out of that pot comes this stew of near future terrorism, bioengineering, conspiracy theory stuff. Combine that with, you know, the immersive sim idea and you're off to the races. The thing about Deus Ex though was it was it was largely inspired by my frustration with the Thief, the original Thief game. (laughs) I worked at Looking Glass when when Thief was in development, and I I was what was my title? The VP of role-playing, I think. And so the the team was, I mean, it was a stealth game, right? And it, I was I was playing a build, and I just I I went to the team and I said I'm not good enough to sneak. I, I just I can't do this, and I'm going to stop playing. Let me fight, you know. And they said no, it's a stealth game. If we let you fight, you're not going to sneak. Everybody's going to fight. And as it turns out, for thief, that was absolutely the right call. Okay. It, it, it i mean just look at its success right i mean it spawned a whole genre and people still hold it up as probably the best uh, stealth simulator anyone's ever done you know so they made the right call for the te- for that project i left not because of it but that was you know when when i was leaving so i i left that discussion saying I'm gonna prove to these guys that you can make a game where you can fight or sneak. So that was kind of where the genre mashup thing came from. Like I said, I'm not a blank screen, empty hard drive designer. What I do is I like to mash stuff up, existing stuff to see what comes out of that. And so with, with Deus Ex, it was, you know, shooter, stealth game, role playing. (laughs) Let's mash those together. There's nothing original in Deus Ex, by the way, if you you really think about it. It's just I knew if you mash those three things together, we were going to come up with something that felt and was in fact new. And, you know, that that caused a lot of trouble. There were a lot of people at IDOS who just didn't get it. And I don't even want to tell you how many times I was told just make a shooter. Just why are you wasting your time on this stealth stuff? What percentage of players are going to sneak in this game? And I said, you know, I made a number up. I said, you know, maybe it'll be 30%. 70% are going to fight their way through the game. And they said, if if only 30% of players are going to sneak, why are you spending a dime and any time making, making this whole stealth thing work? And I said, because that's what I want to do. <laughs> and I mean, you know, I, I'm not afraid of being out of work. The worst they can say is no. And, you know, we part ways as friends or something. But, you know, if Chris Roberts taught me anything uh, on Wing Commander, it was the power of the word no. You know, the way to win an argument is to be willing to walk away from it. And I was damn well going to make Deus Ex, come hell or high water. and I just said no. <laughs> um, so you had the genre matching and you had the, the things that people care about in the near future, and that all came together thanks to an incredible team. I mean, if you, it, Harvey Smith was my lead designer for crying out loud, you know? I mean, dishonored, right? He's, he got to make his own games. He's, he's better at this than I am. Guy named Chris Norden who gets way too little credit. He was the lead programmer. He was the king of saying no. But that I needed that. I needed someone to say you're insane. Don't do that. And uh, Jay Lee, the art director. You know, I mean that those guys came together, and the the team came together and was committed to it. That team also worked really hard. You, know, you talk about crunch. I I didn't tell people you must, but that team was not, I mean, they bought into the vision and they were going to make that game. I mean, better than I ever imagined it. And, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, at the beginning of a game, you you kind of not literally, but you you sort of figuratively close your eyes and imagine what the game is going to be. And it's never, ever what you thought it was going to be things just changed so radically but with, with deus x you know i opened my eyes after three years and every single detail had changed but it was exactly the game i wanted it to be i mean it, that that just does not happen you know and the the team made it better in every way i can give you plenty of specific examples if you want but at the end of the day the, the vision. Of that real-world role-playing game was was realized and you know like i said that's why i'm I'm so proud of that team i can't even tell you and and i'm i'm so proud of the game you know because it's you know it it sold well it it wasn't you know it it didn't sell 80 million copies or anything it sold well enough that somebody funded my next game okay (laughs) that's that's good um But there are a lot of ways to to define success. And one of them is making a ton of money. And one is, you know, seeing a movie made of your game. And um, one of them is is my ego is going to go completely out of control at this moment. One of of the measures of success is is influence, you know, making a difference and leaving something behind that, that changes things. And I I have been so lucky, you know. Underworld changed things, and and you know Deus Ex, it it demonstrably changed things. You know I I remember sitting at um, at at, uh, one of the awards ceremonies, and the guys at the table next to me had had made a game that was you know it was a first person shootery kind of game, and they they said wow, when we played Deus Ex, we completely rethought the game we were making. I had another developer, another studio, who I will not name, say, we, we changed the way we think about games after playing Deus Ex. And there was another developer that said, we started our company because of Deus Ex. That, that means more to me than it probably should. You know, Make, making a difference is a, is a good thing, uh, especially in... In a medium that still doesn't know what it's really capable of, of being and doing and where as as budgets increase uh, and big mega corporations get more and more involved the games are riskier and people are unwilling to take the risks so getting the chance to help define a new medium of expression is an opportunity that comes along about once every, maybe twice every hundred years, you know? And the reality is the folks who were making it up back in the seventies and eighties had that chance. And the thing I always tell people now, I mean, we had that chance on Deus Ex and other people can decide how we really did. I think that team kicked ass and made a difference. And Even now, I tell people all the time, you still have the opportunity to change things, to help define this medium. And, you know, don't be scared of it. (laughs) You know, my my motto is fail gloriously. You know, it's better to fail gloriously than to succeed at something mediocre. And, you know, you may fail, but, and, and that is tragic in a sense, because people lose jobs and, you know lose their i mean it's bad but at the end of the day if a game fails world peace is not threatened and the climate doesn't go kerfloo and cancer is not you know it doesn't fail i mean it doesn't succeed in being cured i mean we're making games so do something crazy you know try crazy things because anyway I, this is all me being a blowhard but the reality is Influence is important, and I am really proud of the game and the team because I think we had some influence. There you go. You go back under control.
0: <laughs> I, I'm just keeping myself under control because because Thief and Deus Ex and those are they like among my favorite games of all time. Like so, like and, and I am very much a stealth player, so I am I'm, I'm in that hypothetical thirty percent you just made up <laughs> all those years ago. Like, I ironically like opposite of your experience with them with Thief. I don't like shooters and, and stuff because I'm not good enough for them. So if I can sneak through and not have to shoot anyone and not get in a massive battle, that's what I want to do. And, and Deus Ex was perfect for that. It's like I remember, I remember the um, the opening bit, you know, like the you know, Liberty Island, like the you know, the statues. Like, right, I can try and take on like you know these guards or that massive soldier, or I can sneak around the back and I think there's an air vent or something. Right, yeah. let's go. <laughs> and <it's> like, <laughs> that was the whole and,
1: point. I mean, at some <laughs> level, you just captured the reason to make a game like this. If, if I'm playing a shooter and I'm not good enough, my option is to throw my controller across the room. <laughs> if, I'm a, if I'm playing a stealth game and I'm not good enough at sneaking, my option is to push the keyboard away, put the mouse down, and stop playing. In the games I like to make and play, the, the whole point is shooting too tough for you. Try something else. Mm. Thinking too tough for you? Try talking your way past this problem. It, it, try something different, and odds are it's going to work. You know, and if it doesn't, try something else. And I always thought that was the most mainstream idea imaginable. You know, because it, it just it lets you decide what kind of experience you have. It's like the it, it, Deus Ex and games like it they kind of tune themselves to your play stuff. If you, if you go shooting stuff up and blowing stuff up, it's gonna make noise w- and, and big explosions and stuff. And it's going to attract attention, which will give you more opportunities to fight, which you have told the game is exactly what you want to do. And if you're sneaking, you're not going to alert guards and you're not going to attract attention. And you're going to have more opportunities to sneak. The game has tuned itself to your chosen play style. And like I said, that's always seemed to be the most mainstream idea in the world. Unfortunately, I guess I still remain the king of the cult classics because it hasn't (laughs) quite worked out that way. But I'm fine with
2: that.
0: This this is what I interviewed you about um, a couple of years ago. Is like because I I'm so I don't understand how that that mainstream idea of right you could approach this in any way you want. You can like hack and chat your way through, or you can shoot your way through, or you can sneak your way through. You can get through this your way. I don't understand how that a broadly appealing title that can handle any playstyle. Doesn't take off in the way that I, I that we we would hope it would. It's why Deus Ex and Dishonored are now technically on hiatus. Like there is no more Deus Ex coming, there is no more Dishonored yeah. coming. There's no more Thief coming. And I guess that's a bit more that's a bit more kind of specialist. That's not as adaptable, but it's still technically an immersive sim. And that immersive sim genre, the, you know that, that that concept that was started way back with Ultimate Underworld, which as as you say is like is is so potentially appealing to everyone that it's just not case but you know the, the chapter uh, the folks at um, arcane they're now making uh, deathloop um and i read like yeah like they, i read something recently like they 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 view deathloop as kind of an immersive sim take on a shooter and it's a lot more action packed there is obviously sn- sneaking opportunities there is you know there's all that but they're focused more on the action and I imagine that is because the action is what appeals to the broader audience. But like, yep. I, you know, it probably is seventy. It's probably higher than seventy percent action players, you know, shooter players. Like, yep. but yeah, those of us who want choice, I just don't understand why that's not a thing.
1: Well, they have become a very big company now, Arcane, and that imposes some uh, constraints. You know, you've got to you've got to go where the, the players are. But you know, I, I I guess we'll get to Epic Mickey at some point, but. <laughs> We're nearly We're there. I promise. About mainstreaming immersive sims, and we'll come back to it.
0: <laughs> well, last question on Deus Ex then, because I'm very conscious of how much of your time I'm taking up with both you and the listeners. Is um I, I love that that concept you said earlier about uh, you're like mashing up genres, right? This is going to be a shooter and a stealth game and a role playing game. Like, is there still the opportunity to mash up genres? Because it kind of it kind of feels like. So much has been done in the mainstream, yeah, in the AAA space and then in the indie space that almost any game, almost, i you yeah, very careful there, almost any game, you, can, you look at it when it's announced and you feel like, you, it, it can be easy to feel like you instantly know, ah, that's this, or that's, that meets this. And it feels like there isn't as much opportunity or as much like new ideas, like you know, like it doesn't feel like we're coming up to like the next Deus Ex moment, or maybe we are and we just don't recognize it. I just want to get your thoughts on that.
1: Uh, well, I have two thoughts. One is you never know about that Deus Ex moment idea. There could be two people in a garage working on something that changes the world. I mean, Minecraft anyone? <laughs> you know, you just never know. As far as... Uh, The question, is there room for genre mashups without revealing too much of what I'm doing for a living these days? There better be. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, if there isn't, uh, I'm in a world of trouble. Let's just leave it at that.
0: And finally, Epic Mickey, released in 2010 for Wii, developed by Junction Point Studio and published by Disney. Uh, followed by Epic Mickey 2: The Power of Two in 2012 for Wii U, PS3, and 360. I mentioned that because we're we'll never be going to touch on it. And I think technically, you told me this is the last finished game that you have worked directly on. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. Uh, it's it's kind of sad. Um, it, it's funny at Origin. Uh, I, again, I won't name names, but there was someone at origin who went 10 years without shipping a game and got paid every year. Like, how does that happen is what I used to think. Now I know how that
2: happens.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's a little embarrassing. Now I will say, uh, after junction point shut down, I did go and I, I spent about nine months sitting on a couch with a remote control, uh, lamenting my fate. I really, that, Junction point closing hit me really, really hard. And then I spent three years building a game development program at the University of Texas. And so that accounts for about four years of it. The the rest of it is is a little hard to understand. Well, it's not hard to understand. I can't talk about it much, but it is what it is. You know, there's a there's a three-year period where I've gotten paid to work on things and you haven't seen the results. And we'll we'll leave that at that um but uh epic mickey uh was it you know i said i'm really proud of deus Ex. epic mickey is the the other game i'm I'm super proud of partly because uh again i had i had just a, a great team that totally bought a vision that was partly because if they weren't at the start of development they were, at the end of development, huge Disney nerds. <laughs> but at the beginning, actually, I, I'm kind of telling this out of order, but I started Junction Point. I left Ion Storm and wanted to start my own studio. And so I started Junction Point. And I was, I was represented by a uh, creative artist agency. Seamus Blackley, the father of the Xbox, was uh, an agent, a game agent. And he signed me and, and four other, you know, developers who he thought their names could help get deals. And without going into detail, he had a, a plan that was pretty darn good to change the way games are funded and published. It, it was phenomenal. And it came literally within 24 hours of working and fell apart in one day. Someday. Another time we can talk about that. Um, but anyway, during that time I, I was working on three concepts uh, all immersive Sims, um, uh, an epic fantasy role-playing game about enormous dragons you know returning to a, a fantasy world, um, a modern day ninja game with uh, the film director John Wu and um, uh, a game that I thought would be, kind of the next generation of Deus Ex in, in gameplay, but dealing with things people are interested in that weren't all that conspiracy stuff and, you know, all that other Deus ex stuff. And I, <laughs> we were working on, on those three things uh, when uh, Seamus told me uh, we should pitch uh, Disney on, on those properties. And I, I, said, there's no way they're going to be interested. Um, and to make a long story short, as short as I can make anything, they weren't interested. And in the middle of the presentation, they started looking at their phones and typing away and, you know, um, I was, I was ready to kill Seamus because I knew that was going to happen, but it turned out they were, they were texting each other to ask if they should pitch me on doing a game for Disney, a, a different game for Disney. And they, they asked if at the end of the pitch, they asked me if I was interested in licensed games and Disney games. And I said, sure, give me Scrooge McDuck and Donald. And I'm, I'm your guy. I love those characters and give me um night stalker, you know, the monster of the week TV show. I've always wanted to do that game too. Um, and they said, "Well, what do you think about Mickey Mouse?" And it, it was another one of those who says no. <laughs> like, okay, Disney saying, "Take the most recognizable icon on planet Earth and make a game featuring that character." And and they said, "Yeah, you know, we have a concept we want to we, we'd like to show you." And they showed me this thing. And they had a, a PowerPoint deck, and it was it was phenomenal. It was just like ten slides, and it I, it was it was what became Epic Mickey in a sense. They said you don't have to do any of that; do whatever you want with Mickey Mouse. And I just looked at him and I said, you know, Disney has some pretty smart, creative people, and why would I not take? Those amazing ideas and build on them. You've just given me an acorn, and I am going to grow it into an oak tree. You know, it's like, come on. And so um, I went back to my studio uh, to Junction Point, and I I pulled the whole team together, and I said, guys, we're not going to do a modern day ninja game with John Woo. We're not going to do updated Deus Ex and we're not going to do a, an epic fantasy role-playing game. We're making a Mickey Mouse game. <laughs> and uh, they looked at me like I was crazy. And and actually, um, my top-level builder, and he said, I, I can't do that. I'm, I'm a shooter guy. I'm a role-playing guy. I'm, I'm out of here. And my lead writer, who I love, uh, said, I don't have that voice. I can't. I can't make a a Mickey Mouse game. And they left, which was the right decision for them. It was the right decision for the studio and project. Um, It was a little painful, but the folks who were left um, were either too scared to leave or were really into it. And to get all the way back to, you know, sales and stuff and mainstream appeal, I I really did believe that Immersive Sims were a mainstream idea. And I said to myself, with Mickey Mouse as my star, I can sneak that idea out into the world to a mainstream audience. You know, I could go out on the street and, you know, right now and yell, I created JC Denton. And no one, I mean, they think I was crazy. No one would care. I'm making a Mickey Mouse game and 100% of the people who heard me would have an opinion about that. 100%. Gamers, you would not believe the abuse I took from gamers. Let's just say that. Um, Sellout was the nicest thing people said to me. (laughs) But what was frustrating to me is Epic Mickey is built on exactly the same philosophy as Deus Ex and Underworld and System Shock and Thief and Dishonored. It's the same philosophy. And they didn't, they, either they didn't see it or they didn't want to see it. Or they, they, it, they were too cool for school. I'm not going to be a cartoon mouse. You know, I want to be the last space marine between the Earth and alien invasion. But for whatever reason, they didn't get it.
0: I guess it didn't help as well that it was, it was exclusive to Wii, which made sense because like the the motion controls and like the pointer, so you could like spray the paint, like and yeah. and, 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 yeah. and and yeah, it fit on a Nintendo platform with a Nintendo audience. But this is at the point when Nintendo was doing its whole kind of nine to ninety-five, yeah, you know, five to ninety-five audience, and it's Blue Ocean. Yeah. Like, the Wii was a machine of like Wii Sports and Wii Fit and Mario and Mario Kart and like all this stuff, which which you know. Sitting alongside like the three sixty and the p s three which were doing all these kind of you know incredible things, the hardcore you know it's the generation that Gears of War really took off, like that sort mm-hmm. of thing, um yeah, a Mickey Mouse game for a Nintendo console, like just on paper. I can see why some people wrongly assume that that's not for them
1: <laughs> well, but you said something really important, you know uh that Nintendo is that you know five to ninety five audience, one of the things that I learned at Disney or that uh, uh, something I took from that experience uh, was very early on the folks at Disney they they it's amazing they they are all on a mission and there is a I mean it there's a feeling of being part of something bigger than yourself that is that I, I have not felt anywhere else everybody buys into the mission or they don't survive yet. and part of that mission that is very explicitly stated is we make entertainment for families, you know? Um, And I went to see a Disney film uh, not long after I started at Disney and sitting right in front of me was a kid and, and must've been his grandfather, you know, and they were both loving it. And then you go to Pixar, which I, I was privileged enough to do on several occasions. And what they say is, we make entertainment for everyone. And I, I just, it, it took me aback. And I just said, well, why can't a game do that? You know? And let's try it. What do we have to lose? Fail gloriously. You know? And, um, and again, you know, we, we succeeded. We did it. It, it, it. Epic Mickey is, you know, the best-selling game I've ever worked on. You know? By a substantial margin. Mm. almost certainly because people like Mickey Mouse. Okay. (laughs) It's not the game. It was Mickey, but um, it got in the hands of a lot of people and I got more and more heartfelt fan mail on, on Epic Mickey than everything else I've worked on combined. And it was from kids. It was from adults. It was from uh, adults who said they played with their kids it was from Disney fans who respected that we respected the uh, the, the Disney uh, properties. Um, uh, it, the the response was incredible. People people told me that they they play playing Epic Mickey helped them get through chemotherapy. Wow. There was there was one kid who uh, was in a wheelchair, uh, had cerebral palsy, and. Uh, he was there with his dad, um, at a, at a trade show and he, he looked at his dad and said, uh, can I use this as part of my physical therapy? And I got a letter from the, from the guy's dad who said they talked to his doctor and the doctor said that would be great. So this, this kid got to use Epic Mickey as part of his physical therapy, you know, um, I went to another trade show. I'm not done yet. I'm I'm going. I cannot be stopped. (laughs) Uh, I I have pictures from another trade show of a little girl in a a fairy costume and a little boy in in a, uh, a fireman outfit and another kid in a flash costume. And I've got pictures of them with their parents' arms around them and playing the game. And then the the best one was, uh, my battery is going to die here any second. But um, the best one was, I got a letter from uh, a a father who said, my 16-year-old daughter is autistic, and she doesn't interact with the world. But she interacted with your game and insisted that I tell you how much she loved. We did something special in Avid Mickey, and, and we don't get the credit for it. Team team did amazing things. I remember the
0: first time I saw it in action, um, myself actually was, um, it was a preview event. The Disney team in the UK used to do volunteers, as in Mickey Mouse ears, um, uh, volunteers, and they would take their latest um, video games and stuff um, to Great Ormond Street Hospital. And I was invited down to kind of see what they were doing and kind of talk about the initiative. And you had kids in... In, you know, in Gosh, coming down and playing Epic Mickey, and they were absolutely loving it. So, yeah, you can, you can see that.
1: Yeah, that it wasn't perfect, it had its problems, but, you know, it, <laughs> I'm really proud of it. It
0: does speak to um, something, you know, the, the five games of is always about talking about what has changed over the course of a, of a guest's. Career, but one thing that hasn't changed is that is the power of licenses. And you know, licensed games have been available for you know since day dot. You have like you know licensed arcade cabinets way back in the day before we even had home consoles. Um, but Epic Mickey is like one of those prime examples. That I don't think license uh, you know or, or IP holders do enough, which is experimenting with that and giving people like a different kind of look at their at their 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 IP because. The thing is, you automatically have a connection. Players automatically have a connection with a property. Like, um, there are indie games out there that recreate that kind of Spider Man swinging mechanic. But if it's not a Spider Man game, it doesn't. Feel like it, it, it. There just isn't that connection. You have to work much, much harder. And you could perhaps argue that that means a license is, you know, it's an easy way to back an audience. But you, you've got to earn that. You've got to, you know, kind of make it true to the brand. Um, I'm rambling, but I am coming to a point. I promise. <laughs> like, do you think we'll see more IP holders doing this sort of kind of experimentation? Because because the fruits it can produce, you know, Epic Mickey was you know superb best-selling game you've worked on certainly reviewed well well um we've seen kind of uh insomniac spider-man all right it's not as dramatic a departure from um the source material but it does take its own its own take on it and and someone from disney actually at a conference a couple of years ago said you know we see that and we'd love for developers to kind of do this with our our properties i'm like you were doing this on the Wii, like just Go back to doing that. Um, I, I, there, there are examples. I, I apologise. I'm using Spider-Man again as an example, but um, the into the Spider-Verse film, which everyone goes nuts for, and the Spider yeah, was inspired by the Spider-Verse comic storyline. The Spider-Verse comic storyline was inspired by the. I think it was. Um, Shattered Dimensions, the Activision game, that one of the Spider-Man writers worked on and came up with all these different Spider-Man characters. And he took that concept and made the Spider-Verse comic book, which is brilliant, and then took that to make the movie, which is amazing. Oh, yeah. Like, so, uh, yeah. Do, do you think we'll see... Like, what is it about that's holding IP holders back from letting people like yourself just go nuts with their IP and, like, just just come up
1: with these incredibly original takes on them? You know, I I, I have no great uh, insight into this. I have opinions. Um, I think what what Disney found in me was a Disney geek. Um, When I told my mom that I was working for Disney, her response wasn't, are you crazy or congratulations? It was, it's about time. I can show you a picture of myself and mouse ears when I was literally one year old. Um, I was born for that. So I think it's partly finding finding people who aren't doing it, um, as a job of work, but are doing it because it, well it's a calling, you know, it's where I started, you know, it, it's, it, it's something that you have to do. And, um, That leads to um, The idea of respecting the property Uh, there it's interesting because um, I Needed to know how far Disney would let me go With Mickey Mouse and with their their properties. And so we created Some pretty crazy stuff Uh, there were some designs for Mickey that you can see them in the Art of Epic Mickey book, some of them. And there was some concept art that got leaked that was much darker, let's just say, than what we actually ship. And uh, a lot of that was done specifically to find out where the line was that I couldn't cross with Mickey Mouse. Um, you know, the way to find out where a line is is to cross it decisively and pull back. It's not to say... Ooh, I don't know if they're gonna let me do this, I shouldn't push too far. So you show them crazy stuff and then you pull it back a little bit, you pull it back, and then they say, Okay. Um, but finding someone who really wants to do this and who you know will respect the property. I mean, I would never do anything to to hurt Mickey Mouse. Um God, it sounds so silly when you say this stuff out loud.
2: I don't
0: think
1: anyone would do anything to hurt Mickey oh, Mouse. You would hope not. There are a lot of people who would put a gun <laughs> in his hand and have him go blast and stuff. Um, but I, I proved, I think, that, um, that I wasn't going to do that. You know, I got to pitch uh, the game to, I mean, everybody up to Bob Iger, the CEO of the company, and gave, gave regular reports to the, the most senior management of the company and i think you know i think they all appreciated what we were doing and and the respect we showed for those characters and because we showed that respect we got we got the freedom to do some interesting things you know people ask me all the time wasn't it terrible working for disney weren't they really you know on you all the time about not doing things and telling you no and it's like well actually no they were pretty good about it you know um it it certainly wasn't any worse than some other places i've worked on some other games that didn't have the kind of uh you know cachet or importance that mickey mouse has so uh i i think if you're going to see that it's going to have to come from a place of respect and love um and not just hey we can sell a lot of copies if we do you know
0: that is more than we have time for, and thank you so much for giving up so much of your of your day, Warren. Well,
1: you know, don't don't make me talk about games, please. You know, <laughs> you know, it's like I like doing this more than anything else, so it was great. It was fun. I, I
0: feel like I've learned that mistake the hard way. Um, edi- editing this oh, will be fun. Thank you. I, so I much. do go on. I'm really sorry. You can find all episodes of the GamesIndustry.biz podcast, including previous five games of the game developer playlist, our regular news show, and recently we've been running a GI Live sessions. So if you missed our uh, GI Live online event back in April, you can listen to some of the best sessions that we uh, put up on our YouTube channel. We've got audio versions on there on the podcasting platform of your choice. Just subscribe and scroll further up the feed, uh, and you can get more news, insight, and analysis into the world behind video games at GamesIndustry.biz.
2: Ultimate Underworld, the Stygian Abyss. I'm going to check that. I've actually said Stygian correctly there.
1: Um, no, no. Well, you did, but Richard always pronounced it Stygian. Stygian. Okay, so okay that's fine. In, in Ultima I'm lore, gonna, it's Stygian.
0: Stygian. I'm going to redo that, and no one will ever know.